Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. There are lots of articles, YouTube channels, podcasts like this one that enjoy showing off weird and unusual historical things, which I love. And one of the incidents that gets mentioned very often on various lists and videos about unusual historical things is what's probably the shortest war in recorded history, the Anglo-Zanzibar War. It lasted less than an hour. And, again, most of the time when it's talked about, it's only talked about because it was so brief. It's a sort of fun trivia answer or anecdote. And today, I wanted to get into some of the details behind that fun trivia answer and anecdote. Because the Anglo-Zanzibar War, it's more than just a, you know, trivial pursuit card. It was an actual real conflict between belligerents, there were stakes, and people did die. So first, some background about our setting. Zanzibar, one of the places on Earth with possibly the coolest name ever. Uh, Zanzibar is an island off the coast of what is now modern-day Tanzania. And it's been the hub of trade and commerce for some time. And when I say some time, I mean centuries. We're talking about back to the 13 and 1400s here. Uh, for traders going up and down the African coast, it was highly convenient if they wanted to get to the Arabian Peninsula or to India or to Southeast Asia. And yes, a lot of that trade from the African coast to the Arabian Peninsula to Southeast Asia, it was in slaves as well as in ivory and spices and various other goods. The first European power to wrest control of Zanzibar was Portugal. This was in the early 1500s, back when Portugal was still a world power to actually be contended with. And they took control of the island and ruled it for about 200 years. Now, skipping over about 200 years of history here, uh, Portuguese rule, it was tumultuous, it was violent, and they had competition. The other country, the other sort of non-Zanzibarian interest that wanted to take over Zanzibar, and was constantly scuffling with the Portuguese over control of the island, that was Oman. During the 1600s, the Omanis, over a period of several years, they attempted to oust the Portuguese from the island. And over a course of many decades of struggles, and battles, and scuffles, and etc., uh, the Omanis, they eventually won. In 1698, Zanzibar, it was taken over by Oman. And after that, the island, it was ruled by an Arab elite who placed themselves politically and culturally over the local Bantu population. And the leader of this new order was the Omani Sultan, who for a long time was pretty much an absentee ruler who governed from Oman. Uh, it wasn't until the 1840s that Said Said bin Sultan Abu Said uh, moved his capital to the island. And for the first time in a long time, Zanzibar was governed by someone who actually lived on Zanzibar, albeit somebody whose ethnic and religious and cultural fealty was to a place that was not Zanzibar. And the Sultan, both when he ruled from Oman and later from Zanzibar, presided over an economy that relied on slave labor and to a lesser extent the slave trade. It was slaves who were toiling on the island's plantations, and Zanzibar was also a hub where slaves were bought and sold, uh, along with ivory and other goods from the mainland. One figure I found estimated that in the middle 1800s, about 50,000 slaves traveled through Zanzibar each year, with many more dying before they even got there. And 
In this episode, I don't want to lionize British imperialism or make them seem to be the good guys. There was a lot wrong with British imperialism. But it was the British interest in ending the slave trade that got them really interested in Zanzibar. I'm sure they were interested in it for commercial reasons as well. They signed a treaty with the Sultan of Zanzibar that said the slave trade would be curbed in that region, though not eliminated. In 1876, so about a decade after the American Civil War, the sale of slaves, though not slavery, was ended. And Britain, with these agreements, is making its influence more and more and more known and felt in Zanzibar. In 1890, it's all made official, and Zanzibar became a British protectorate. Now, I'm going to talk in very broad strokes here, but when the British Empire showed up in a place that they wanted to fold into their empire, they would often do so by effectively hijacking the local bureaucracy and leadership structures. Uh, they'd find out who was in charge of a certain region, and then negotiate with, entice, or threaten them into becoming their agents. Uh, that way, the British didn't have to build new bureaucratic and leadership structures out of whole cloth. When they took a region over, they could just use what was already there. They could refashion the existing power structure to serve them. And they did that on Zanzibar. Uh, the British essentially said that they would be able to say who was sultan and who wasn't. So when one sultan died or possibly abdicated, Britain would be able to give their rubber stamp and their go-ahead to whoever was going to be their successor. In 1896, the pro-British sultan died, and his nephew, Khalid bin Bargash, seized power in a coup after his death. Now, a few sources that I read mentioned that Khalid bin Bargash might have poisoned the old sultan, but I have not been able to confirm that. The part of me that likes a good story which, by the way, is different than the humane part of me that wants my fellow humans to not get poisoned, wants to believe that there really was some shady cloak-and-dagger stuff going on in the palace, but again, I can't confirm that. However, a nephew poisoning his uncle so he can become king, that is totally a better story. When Khalid bin Bargash took power, uh, he did not get British approval, and that was in violation of the previous agreement, and the British Empire responded. They considered Khalid bin Bargash essentially a usurper and were not going to legitimize his rule. Two days after Khalid bin Bargash's coup, where he maybe possibly killed his uncle, the British Navy showed up with about a thousand men, two gunboats, and three cruisers. To meet this force, the new sultan, he had about 2,800 men. So at least he outnumbered the British by about three to one, but Zanzibar was a commercial and trading power, not a military one. Even though some of Bin Bargash's men were soldiers, many others were simply palace guards, and a good amount of that 2,800, they were civilians who had been conscripted very recently to deal with the impending British response to the coup, and according to the British, a usurpation. So even though the Sultan had a lot of guys, he did not have well-trained guys. The British, on the other hand, they had a thousand military men. Uh, as for armaments on the Zanzibari side, the Sultan had one yacht, which had been quickly weaponized, two much smaller boats, several Maxim guns, a Gatling gun, uh, a bronze cannon from the 17th century, and two 12-pound field guns. That was it. Many single British boats had more firepower than that. And some of these guns that Bin Bargash is intending to use against the British, 
They're not even guns that were really intended for fighting. They were gifts that previous sultans had been given by other leaders to display, you know, as conversation pieces, like having your grandfather's old war rifle on the wall. The two 12-pound guns, for example, were uh, a gift from German dignitaries to a former sultan. So Bin Bargash is doing the equivalent of grabbing your grandfather's old war rifle that's been on the wall of your living room for years, gathering dust, and it's just there to be looked at, and essentially grabbing that museum piece and intending to actually use it on the British Navy. In my reading of this, I don't think that the British really had any intention of actually using all of the firepower that they brought to Zanzibar, at least not initially. Uh, it seems that what they really wanted to do was show up with a whole bunch of ships, men, and guns, have a show of force, and then there'd be a surrender in the face of that obviously superior firepower. But with the British Navy at his door, and I mean literally at his door, like floating in view of the palace, the new Sultan Khalid didn't blink. He seems to have been some combination of brave, foolhardy, or crazy, and he was a fairly young man, so I can kind of see that. And even while looking at British guns, he sent a message to the British diplomatic contact saying that no, he was not going to exceed the British power. The British responded by saying that he had about 30 minutes to change his mind, and that if he didn't step down by 9am, they would open fire upon the Sultan, his palace, and the 2,800 defenders that Khalid bin Bargash had managed to recruit. 30 minutes came and went, and bin Bargash refused to give up his throne. Those five British ships opened fire upon the Sultan's palace, his yacht and two smaller boats were soon destroyed, and British ordnance ripped through the palace, and men began to die. Here's what the Associated Press had to say about the attack in the newspapers of 1896. A naval official was sent to the palace square with another message for Said Khalid, that's Khalid bin Bargash, asking him if he was prepared to surrender, and again notifying him that the palace would be shelled at 9 o'clock promptly if he failed to haul down his flag. Said replied that he would die sooner than surrender. His answer was conveyed to Admiral Rawson. At nine o'clock, the flagship signaled the raccoon, thrush, and sparrow. The raccoon, thrush, and sparrow are names for British ships, and I like them. I wish that we had ship names like raccoon. The flagship signaled the raccoon, thrush, and sparrow to commence firing. A moment later, the cruiser and two gunboats opened fire with their heaviest guns. Ten minutes later, they had sent a storm of shell and shot into the palace, tearing big gaps in it, scattering death and confusion among its defenders, while dismounting some guns ashore and putting to flight the gunners handling the pieces. The fire of the warships was admirably directed. Smoke was soon seen issuing from several parts of the palace. During this time, the St. George and the Philomene, those are two other British ships, they were held in reserve, although they occasionally plumped a shot into the enemy's camp, adding to the dismay of its defenders. The raccoon, thrush, and sparrow kept up the bombardment until 9.50, when the palace was tumbling in ruins and large rents had been made in the barricade of the sultan's followers, who answered the fire of the warships with persistency and gallantry, and did not stop firing until in response to the flagship's signal of cease firing, the guns of the warships stopped showering shot and shell ashore. The losses of the enemy are not known, but must have been heavy, especially among the defenders of the palace proper. During all of that, the Sultan fled and took refuge in the German consulate. And 
this is what really kills it for me. And granted, I might be waxing romantic here, but had Khalid bin Bargash been standing there with his men, you know, like King Leonidas or something, had he put himself on the line in some kind of doomed, idealistic, patriotic stand against an impossible enemy, I think I might have a shred more sympathy for him. Maybe. Uh, he was a monarch. I don't really like monarchs. Uh, and he was the head of a slave economy. And I don't like slave economies. And he probably killed his uncle. So I don't feel all that bad for this fellow. But something about running away while the other men fought for him against, against an impossible enemy seems unseemly. But again, maybe that's because of my own romantic and narrative notions at play more than anything else. Sources differ on how long the gunfire lasted. It lasted either 38, 40, or 45 minutes. But in any case, the Anglo-Zanzibar War is often talked about, like I mentioned, as the shortest war in recorded history. 500 of those Zanzibaris died during that short little war. Only one British man was wounded. After the hostilities, the British did what they always did. They moved in, and they manipulated the pre-existing power structure to suit their own political needs. The British Empire, they placed another guy, Hamoud bin Muhammad, on the throne. Uh, he would rule Zanzibar as sultan until he died in 1902, and Hamoud bin Muhammad, he would have the honor of finally, finally, abolishing slavery on the island. As for Khalid bin Bargash, he fled to Germany, East Africa, modern-day Tanzania, where he received political asylum. He was eventually captured by British forces in Dar es Salaam. Again, they still considered him a usurper. And later on, he was exiled to St. Helena, eventually released, and in 1927, he died in Mombasa. In 1963, Zanzibar gained independence from Britain, and for about a year, it was a constitutional monarchy. The Sultanate persisted. In 1964, though, the people of Zanzibar, they overthrew the Sultan, and after a fairly dramatic revolution, the island eventually joined with Tanzania. That, though, is a story for a different time. The Anglo-Zanzibar War is, yes, unusual in how short it is, and yes, that is why I'm talking about it today, but I think it's worth mentioning that even though it is a short war, it was still, indeed, a war. It is fascinating to see how much politics how much violence, and how much of the future can change in 38, 40, or 45 minutes. If you want to contact me with questions or comments or, I don't know, insults, um, we are on Facebook at facebook.com slash interestingtimeswithjoestreckert, and I am on Twitter at joestreckert. Uh, there is a question box on the website if you want to ask me a question. Please do that. We're also on iTunes. Give us a rating and give us a review. That helps other people discover the show. Also, later this month, I will be making a somewhat large announcement. Going to keep you all in suspense and stuff. See you next week, guys. Thanks for listening.